John chapter 12, verses 1 to 8. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And so they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining at table with him. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. And Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hallelujah. Uh, join me in prayer, please. Lord God, we, uh, Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for this day. Lord, we thank you for uh, clear weather and worship. Lord, we thank you for what you have done in Christ. So, Lord God, we pray as we open your word together this morning as your gathered church. Lord, we pray you would open our hearts and our minds to hear and to understand and to believe what we have what we read and what we discuss. And so, Lord, we pray that your spirit would be poured out among us. And, Lord, mighty works would be done here this morning through your word. And we ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, the other day, I was as I was preparing, uh, I was commenting to Sharon, which is something I really kind of want to do when, when I'm working on Sunday morning. I, I start throwing stuff by her. So really, by the time Sunday morning rolls around, she's heard everything I'm going to bring up anyway, right? <laughs> But um, I, I was telling her, I said, it's, it's really been quite fascinating as I was studying for this week how, how really all of our Lenten texts have been focused on responses. Um, this is not really a cheap way to do a recap, but I am going to quickly do a recap, right? But, but the first week of Lent, we, really, we saw how Jesus responded to Satan as he was being tempted in the wilderness. He responds out of his sonship to the Father and, and out of his obedience to the Father. Then the second Sunday of Lent, we saw him responding to this really poor threat from Herod, from the Pharisees. And we saw how he would not be distracted from the mission that the Father had sent him to do. He responds, again, in obedience and sonship. And then the third Sunday of Lent, we, we looked at this parable of the barren fig tree, and we see the response of the vineyard owner and the vine dresser to a fig tree that's not bearing fruit. The vineyard owner wants to tear it down. The vine dresser wants to be patient just for one more year and to give it manure, and hopefully it'll bear fruit. And then last week we see in the parable of the prodigal son, we see two brothers and their, either their repentance or their encouragement to repent. And then we also see how the father responds to them as they repent. And so now, here this week, again, this is not a cheap way of recapping, but, but my point in bringing this out is to hopefully help us see this particular theme of response, not only running through our texts, but also... We see in this text for today, we see again responses, and we see two responses to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so far, the responses that we have seen all through Lent have pretty much been from Christ, right? Either his response to Satan or his response to the Pharisees. Or we've seen how we are to respond when we are encouraged to repent, right? Because that's one of our main Lenten themes. But as we get closer to his passion, to his death, and his victory of the resurrection... We see that the response this morning turns to the person of Christ. 
And practicing Lent, then, and what this text does for us is it really forces us to ask, how are we to respond to the person of Christ? In our text for this morning, we see two very clear and very contrasting examples in the persons of Mary and Judas Iscariot and how they respond to the person of Christ. And these responses take place within surrounding this anointing of Jesus. And this is a common this is one of those stories that is incur- that, that, that's encapsulated in all four Gospels, but there's differences among each. But, but here we see that this story takes place, these responses take place within his anointing. And beginning in verses 1 and 2, we have John, again, he sets the setting, he sets the context, and he tells us this. He says, six days before the Passover, Jesus comes to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And so they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, again, as we know about her, she's wont to do, she serves. And Lazarus is one of those who's reclining at the table with him. And so there are really three key factors that I think John brings out in these first two verses that help us as we consider how Mary responds to the Lord and then how Jesus respond, uh, Judas excuse me, responds as well. And the first one is there in the first part of verse 1 where, he tells, where John tells us that, again, it's the Passover once more. For John, this is now the third time he's mentioned the Passover in his gospel. And this is really significant because something that we have been building towards really ever since the second Sunday of Epiphany has now come to fruition here. In the second Sunday of Epiphany, we look at the water being turned into wine at the wedding at Cana. But now at this third Passover, we see that Jesus' hour has finally arrived. At the wedding at Cana, he responds back to Mary, his mother, and he says, My hour has not yet come. Now his hour has come. But even more so, John mentions here, this idea that it's six days before the Passover. And this is not an insignificant detail. He's not just throwing it out there just to give us a time period. He has a particular purpose in bringing up this time period. Because remember that for John's gospel, the wedding at Cana also occurred six days after the public ministry of Jesus had begun. And now, at the end of his public ministry, the six days comes into play again pointing us again to this dawn of this new creation in Christ Jesus. It starts with his public ministry, but now it has come to a full fruition at the end of his public ministry. The seventh day of the new creation is now upon us as the Son of Man is about to be lifted up so that all who look on him will believe and have eternal life. But the other important contextual detail lies within the person of Lazarus in these first two verses because he's mentioned twice here. And both times that he's mentioned, what John does is he, he follows it up with a little clause to kind of help add to really the tension of this scene. The first one he says here in verse 1, he says, Lazarus is with him whom Jesus has raised from the dead. And if you'll remember, again, just connecting this back all the way to the wedding at Cana, at the wedding at Cana, a sign was performed. A sign is a miracle But an outcome of a sign is different than a miracle. A miracle is something that everyone witnesses, right? So the water being turned into wine and people drink it, they're witnessing that miracle. But a sign is something that causes those who witness it to actually believe in Jesus as the Christ. In John chapter 2, verse 11, we read that the sign of the water to wine at Cana caused his disciples to believe in him. And here... The miracle of raising Lazarus, yes, Lazarus was raised. People that don't believe in Christ see Lazarus and they know that he has been raised from the dead. But here, there's a similar effect of a sign. 
In John eleven forty five, John writes, he says, Many of the Jews who had come with Mary had seen what Jesus had done by raising Lazarus from the dead. They had seen what Jesus had done, and they believed in him. And this sign, from what John tells us then right after this, is the reason now that the Jewish leadership, they're, they're done. They're done with Jesus, and they're ready to kill him. In verse 45, we read that, 47, excuse me, we read this in chapter 11. We see, so the chief priests and the Pharisees gather the whole council together, and they say, they said, what are we to do? This man performs many signs. And if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And then in verse 53, John writes, he says, so from that day on, They made plans to put Jesus to death. So the sign of Lazarus being raised from the dead is adding, again, to this tension of what's going on in the anointing of Christ here. But the second clause surrounding Lazarus here in these first two verses continues to add tension. We see that Lazarus is also one of those reclining at the table with Jesus, which honestly just simply gives us further proof that Lazarus was actually raised from the dead. Similar to the same actions that the Lord Jesus takes after his resurrection, John is just giving us some simple proof that that Lazarus is actually alive. And so he's sitting back at the table. He's been eating at the table with Jesus. And so adding even further proof to this, though, we see in verse 2 here, there is a dinner that is given in honor of the Lord Jesus. This dinner is a celebration of Jesus' sign by his loving response to Mary and Martha, by healing their sick brother, by raising him from the dead. Lazarus being mentioned here just simply serves to highlight that the meal is a celebration of a resurrection, not a funeral meal that we're all very familiar with when we go to a funeral. And so Lazarus, whom Jesus has raised from the dead, who's now reclining at the table and eating with the Lord Jesus, was a living and breathing sign, both for the belief of some and the unbelief of others. And now that the Lord's hour has come, Jesus' signs are what help us to set the framework for what is about to happen when Mary anoints him. But there's one other thing that John simply kind of hints at here that I thought was just quite fascinating when, when you start to peel away the layers like an onion, right? And you start to see there's some things going on here. And I, and I think it really helps to even more so set the context for what's going on today. And it ties, again, to this new creation, the six days, but as well as this meal being held in Jesus' honor. There was a commonly accepted tradition, not only in the early church, and by that I mean the apostolic church, but even the first few hundred years of church history, that the Lord Jesus was not only crucified on Passover, which we get very clearly from Scripture, but also that he was crucified on the 14th day of the month of Nisan, which is the first month of the Jewish New Year. The reason this is important is because of what the Lord commands Moses and the Israelites to do on the 10th day of Nisan. In Exodus chapter 12, Yahweh tells Moses, he says, Tell all of the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, and that lamb shall be without blemish. And you shall keep it until the 14th day, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Cyril of Alexandria writes here, he says that John, pointing out here in chapter 12, that this occurs six days before Passover, he says, he's proving to us that the Lord Jesus does not despise the law, but it is necessary that the lamb should be kept and chosen until the 14th day. 
And then Peter reminds us in his first letter in chapter 1, he says, Know that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And so John's wording here, it's very intentional, as, G- as is Jesus' choice to dine with Mary and Martha and Lazarus right outside of Jerusalem six days before Passover at this particular Passover because it's prior to his triumphal entry that we'll see next week and his passion and his death and his resurrection because what Jesus is doing is he is now publicly identifying with John the Baptist's proclamation that he is the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. And so it's no wonder that John stresses the anointing of Christ at this particular moment in his public ministry. And so... With each of these contextual factors in mind, right, Lazarus, Passover, but as well as Christ being the Lamb of God, look at how Judas and Mary both respond to Christ. In Mary's response, we see in verse 3, we see, he says, Mary, therefore, right, therefore that Jesus is the Christ, therefore that he is the Lamb of God, therefore that she has believed in him because of his signs, she takes a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anoints the feet of Jesus and then wipes his feet with her hair. What this is is really nothing less than an act of pure and joyous worship on Mary's part. But what John does is he, he, he helps us to really identify this ointment to really add to the importance of what's going on. And he uses three specific words here. In the first one, he tells us here that this was a pound of ointment. And the Greek word that John uses for the word pound is the same word where I believe we get our word leader from. But, thank you, Matt. I appreciate that. So, yeah, the word leader, right? I have to look at our Greek scholars in the room, right? But, but interestingly, it's also, from my understanding, it also is used to signify weight rather than volume. So I had to do a little looking. A, a Roman pound is equal to about 12 of our ounces. So we have a pound at 16 ounces, but a Roman pound... Is 12 ounces. Now, I have, I did this because I don't usually do object lessons, right? But I did put a 12 ounces of oil in a jar, right? So just to give you an idea, right? Let me Vanna White this a little bit and show you. For those who don't know who Vanna White is, it's from Wheel of Fortune, right? So that's an old game show, right? It's still on the air. Anyway, so this is 12 ounces of oil, right? This is vegetable oil, which is why it's so light and clear. But this gives you an idea of how much oil there was. This is a Roman pound of oil. To put it plainly, looking at this, you can see this is a lot of perfumed oil. That's a lot of oil to pour on somebody's feet. And so with this in mind, though, looking at this, you can see why John then, he not only says there's a pound of it, but he goes on and he tells us, he says that it's expensive. It's expensive oil. It's so expensive that down in verse 5, what Judas does is he, t- he, he responds in a very snarky way and he says, that this is, it's, this is worth at least a year's salary. It's worth 300 denarii. That's a lot of money. This is no ordinary oil. This is no regular everyday use perfume. This is an extravagant perfume. This is perfume that is really only used on very special occasions. Like this is not the cologne you get at the counter at Walmart, right? This is the cologne you get from like the really expensive store on Broadway in New York or something, right? But... 
I don't know. I've never bought cologne from Broadway in New York. But, but you get the point, right? This is, this is the highest quality of perfumed oil. Really, for many in this culture, something like this would have been an inheritance for somebody because it would have been so much money. And so it's expensive. It's a lot. But he also tells us that it's pure. He says it's made from pure nard. And my understanding, too, as well, with the Greek here, this Greek word pure can also be rendered as genuine or unadulterated. Later Greek writers, from what I gather, also use this word to indicate something that is trustworthy or faithful. And so just taking the understanding that this is an inherited oil, compare how Mary responds here with how she responded just one chapter earlier because Jesus delays in coming and raising her brother from the or, or healing her sick brother, and now her brother has died. She says, she tells him, she says, Lord, if you had just been here, my brother would not have died. Why didn't you come on time, basically? That's what she's saying. She's kind of mad and angry and wagging her finger. Why didn't you show up earlier? He wouldn't have died. Right? You can, you can see that she's heartbroken. Her brother is dead. But, but you understand there's probably some anger. But then what Jesus does is he, le- he raises Lazarus from the dead, and she sees the sign, and she believes in him. And now, in her joy in Christ, in her joy of who he is, Kind of like the amount of wine left over at Cana, she brings an amount of oil, really, that's beyond necessity. And she pours every drop of it onto the feet of the Lord Jesus. But then she doesn't stop there. John tells us she pours this expensive, this pure, this enormous amount of oil onto Jesus' feet. And then she starts to wipe his feet with her hair. Now, if you're like me, every time you come to John's gospel and you read this anointing scene, your first thought is, why is she using her hair? <laughs> like, surely there's a towel in the house somewhere, right? I mean, she's, she's, got a, she's got a tunic on. Like, why not wipe his feet off with her tunic? Because oil is, is, is slick. It's runny. It, it doesn't come out easy. Why is she using her hair? But then you, 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 you come back to yourself and you back away a little bit and you start to realize what's just happened over the last few chapters. And, we cons- and then we consider what Mary is doing and to whom she's doing it to. And we realize that this is just simply another aspect of her worship. It's an aspect of her response to the person of who Christ Jesus is. In the ancient world, taking down your hair was a sign not only of gratitude, but of intimacy and humility. And so by anointing Jesus' feet, Mary's doing a couple of things here. She's She's signifying that Jesus has a kingly role to her. But then by using her hair, she's engaging in an act of really of deep and intimate worship. Not of a peer, but of her God and of her king. And so in the presence of a king, we understand that the only proper posture is kneeling face down at his feet. And this is why Jesus rebukes Judas so harshly in verse 7. Because he understands this. Judas becomes indignant at this act of worship from Mary. And Jesus responds this way. He says, leave her alone so that she may keep this until the day of my burial. And so Jesus responds. He says, look, this, this act of worship is an anointing, but it's anointing him for burial. What Jesus is also doing, and John's reminding us of, is that Jesus is actually clarifying that by anointing him, she has also anointed him as the coming king. 
And here's how, right? Because I, I study this and I'm like, how does this work? And here's how. Kings are always anointed. We understand this even not only just from biblical literature, but any other kind of literature. Kings are consecrated and anointed at the beginning of their rule. But we understand we're a week from Palm Sunday. We're a week and a half from the crucifixion. So according, at this time in the, in the story, it's six days from Passover. How is this the beginning of his rule? Jesus is not ignorant. He knows what he's doing, right? In the Old Testament, kings are anointed on the time, but they're anointed on the head. In Matthew and Mark's gospel, when this story comes up, Jesus is anointed on the head. But the carrying of the feet of someone was something that was the most demeaning task that was assigned to a household servant. And so what Mary does by this act of worship, she takes, she, she, it's one of deep humility and one of a servant to her true master and her true Lord. And by this act of worship, Mary may have been approaching Jesus as a servant by washing and caring for his feet. But Jesus clarifies that she has anointed him for burial, that his reign and rule as a king must start with his crucifixion and his death. And here in Mary's home, Jesus is proclaimed among a small group as king in private, but over the next few days, he is going to be proclaimed as king very publicly. He will be enthroned not by honor and great fanfare and not on a golden and glorious throne, but on a cross in public shame and in humiliation. And in this way, Jesus will also, he will pour out his entire inheritance given to him, like Mary has just poured out her entire inheritance to Christ. And Jesus will pour it out also as a fragrant offering to God. But Judas's response to Jesus we see here in verses 4, 5, and 6 are completely opposite of Mary's. Here's what Judas does. So we see Mary comes, she pours out this oil, and we see Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was about to betray him, he says, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? But he says this not because he cares for the poor, but because he was in charge of the money bag and he was a thief and he used to help himself to the money that was in the money bag. So John, John interestingly does something here that the other gospel writers don't do by recording this particular scene in the life of Christ. John puts all of the blame on Judas. Now, before we start feeling bad for Judas, right? remember John, John tells us in verse 4, he says, Judas is the one to betray Christ. So we don't have to feel bad for Judas in this case. This is not John picking on Judas or treating Judas poorly. But rather, John is what he's doing is he's cluing us in on a particular response to what true worship of Christ looks like. In this case, it is, it is a response that hinders right and worship and right devotion of Christ. And it's a response out of a love of money. As we see in verse 6, Judas, he's not concerned about the poor. He doesn't care about the poor. He's, he's concerned about himself because ultimately he's, just, he's greedy. He's a thief and he's greedy because he loves money. And just consider, again, the amount of money that this oil would have been worth. He, we, we saw this a moment ago. He, he says it's worth 300 denarii. This is worth at least a year's salary. But to understand where Judas is coming from, at least to help us understand the context, back out of the story for a moment and just don't totally forget that Judas is a bad guy here, but forget for a moment that he's the one to betray Christ. And just look at this from an economic standpoint. Right? Even if his motives and his intentions are wrong, which they were, 
It doesn't mean that he's factually wrong about the amount of money this oil is worth. It absolutely is worth a year's salary. And with that in mind, this oil could have indeed been sold and given to people that had nothing. I mean, thinking about motives, at least even pure motives, you think, well, that, that's a good use of this oil. Sell it and give it to those who are hungry and naked and cold. I mean, considering our Lenten practices of serving and giving, this seems like a worthy response of something to do with something so expensive, right? But now come back into the context of the scene and remember who Judas is. Because there's two assumptions based on his reaction. He's making two very wrong assumptions here. And the first one is that he assumes that this oil has some type of real value to Mary in light of what she has decided to do with it. Unlike the Magi who bring Jesus gold and frankincense and myrrh, all of which are very expensive and very kingly gifts, Mary's concern isn't for the monetary value, but rather the worth of the gift that she is giving. In Judas' assumption here, he is flatly stating that Mary's gift, her act of worship, is worthless and wasteful. So for Mary, it's not. For Judas... It's only monetary value. But the second assumption he makes is an assumption that the office of poverty is more important than the office of redeemer and king. So again, consider, consider his greed, right? Consider the greed that John points out here in verse 6. We know that Judas, he doesn't care about the poor. He doesn't care. They can go hungry for all he cares as long as he has a few more coins in his pocket. But in each of the other gospels, the same charge of the expense of this ointment, the same charge is leveled against the woman that anoints Christ. Chrysostom was really helpful here for me. Let me read you what he says. He, he reminds us, he says that once the gift had been given, it was of much greater worth than if it had been sold and the money given to the poor. It was, and he, he also says that it, is, it was a greater mercy to accept it with the love in which it was given. It was given as an act of loving worship. So it was a much greater mercy for Christ to accept it, even if monetarily it was worth a lot of money. And so he writes this. He says, if Mary had possibly asked the Lord Jesus before she did it, he may have told her, sell it and give it to those who are in need. He may have. But, Chrysostom writes, he says, but after she had already done it, he looks only at the gift itself. After the oil had been poured... What good was it to rebuke her for her act of worship? Now, for Judas, he could only see the economic value because of his greed. And for the one who loves money, everything is measured by its monetary value. But for Mary, and if you're taking notes and you want to take home for today, right? Here's, here's our take home for today. For Mary, this extremely expensive ointment is measured by its price in expression of worship and devotion to the Lord Jesus. For her, its true value was that it was the most worthy substance she had to give to Christ. And by anointing him with it, it was given its true value and its true worth. And Jesus responds to Judas with as much. He tells him as much. In verse 8, he says, again, leave her alone in verse 7. Because you always have the poor with you, but me you will not always have with you. Now, this was one of those moments where you have to kind of say, well, what does he mean? Because we have the Spirit, right? But, but he's, he's talking about his literal physical presence. 
And so we have to kind of clarify what he's, what he's saying here because we're reading. Well, you, you always have the poor with you, and so our mind thinks, well, okay, so does that mean the poor is unimportant? That's not what Jesus is saying. He's not, he's not denying the poor their proper place. What he's doing is he, he has multiple teachings on our requirement to care for the needs of the poor, right? And then as the New Testament is being written, all of the New Testament writers echo this teaching. We all have a responsibility to care for the poor. What Jesus is doing is putting the poor in their proper place when it relates to himself. Because what the Lord is doing is he's recalibrating our devotion when he's reminding us of himself and of the poor. The poor are important, yes, right? We, we, we will be held accountable for how we minister to them or how we will not minister to them. But Christ, he reminds us himself, he is of utmost importance. The sole object of our devotion is to be to Christ Jesus and to Christ alone. And this is where I think the social gospel really loses Christ. Because we should absolutely care for the poor and the refugee and the outcast and the naked and the hungry and the sick and the oppressed and the destitute. But we are to do all of it out of our love and devotion for Christ Jesus. And in his rebuke of Judas, Jesus is not advocating for us to neglect the poor. But rather, he's highlighting the importance of what is about to take place. He's highlighting the importance of the fact that he is about to be lifted up on the cross for the sake of the redemption of everyone whom the Father has given to him. That is of utmost importance in this act of worship. And so for us, now that Christ has ascended back to the Father, this is where we can start to really see our Lenten practices in their proper light. Because repentance and fasting and prayer and service or almsgiving, they are all spiritual and physical disciplines that are intended to recalibrate and refocus the right object of devotion and wor- of our devotion and our worship. And that's our focus on Christ Jesus. And then out of our rightly calibrated worship, we then become the fragrant aroma of Christ in the world through the proclamation of him and the gospel. In 2 Corinthians 2, Paul writes this. He says, Thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. So like Mary's oil, we are to fill the room with the perfume of the gospel. And so when we do ministry, whatever that ministry might be, whether that be to the poor or whatever, whoever else, we are to do so because we have come to Christ. And like Mary, we give of all that we have and we lay it at the feet of our Lord Jesus because he is the only costly and worthy inheritance that we have. And so as we draw nearer and nearer to Good Friday, let's surrender to the true purposes of these Lenten practices, not for the sake of the practices themselves, but rather to recalibrate us so that we too will be a fragrant offering to Christ and the, the, the fragrant aroma of Christ as we proclaim Christ to the world. Amen.